All right. Feels like I was just up here. Hey, good to see you guys again. Um, been two weeks since I've been here, and in the last couple of weeks, you have heard from uh, both uh, Chuck Holt, the director of the Factory Ministries, as well as uh, Pastor Joel. Thank you guys both for filling in. I know Chuck is not here this morning. He's speaking at Hershey Mennonite, uh, but I'm grateful for these guys and their contributions to, to our growth and faith in the last couple of weeks. We did have a great time in Barbados, and we will share more about that in, I believe it's uh, two weeks, September 7th and 14th are our great send-off reporting Sundays during the 9 o'clock hour. So if you want to come hear what happened in international and domestic missions this year, uh, GPC at the 9 o'clock hour, September 7 and 14, join us here for an all-church uh, 9 o'clock hour we call the Sunday School Hour, and you'll hear about what went on in Maine, in Costa Rica, in Germany, and in Barbados. All right? So there you go. All right, I want you to know that... Uh, we are coming up on a, uh, a new series beginning after next week. Next week is a one-part series called Derek Slayball. All right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Derek will be bringing the message next week. We're looking forward to that. Uh, following that, then we were going to begin a new series that we're calling Fearless. And this, this series uh, is essentially designed, as the subtitle, Caught in the Stare Down. Uh, it's designed to help us when we are stuck in that moment of uh, indecision, of fear, uh, of, of lack of clarity, of anxiety, of worry, of what our next step should be. Um, how do we respond to that? And in particular, we're going to look at a character in the Old Testament, a man who, who grew uh, through his continued steps into things that were very difficult and dangerous to do, and how his faith grew, and what we can learn from an Old Testament character study. And so Fearless is beginning on September 7th after our one-part Derek Slaybaugh series, all right? So there you have it. All right, now this morning, this morning, for the last two weeks, and then this morning and next week, is, is all kind of under the, the cloud of, under the direction of um, kind of what is going on in, in our lives, or what, as speakers in front of you on a Sunday morning, um, what is it that God is kind of hitting us with right now? So very uh, flexible and fluid kind of month that we have in terms of our speaking, which provides great leverage and opportunity to talk about some unique things. Um, this morning, where I want to go with you, and where my heart was drawn for a while now, knowing that I had this Sunday, is really something that is so fundamental to me, and has shaped me for such a long time, that it's hard sometimes for me even to know how to put it into words, but I've, I hope that I've found some at least that will be helpful for you this morning. Let me begin this way, by talking a little bit about what Christians believe. Uh, if you um, are a Christian or you know Christians, you know this, that Christians believe that there is a God and that we call that God the God of the Bible, or some will call him Yahweh, um, and many just refer to God as, as God. Uh, we believe that God was the creator God who made everything that you see and everything that you also can't see including the galaxies beyond ours, the Milky Way that, that exists here, that is beyond our scope of imagination, that is almost impossible to conceive of how many galaxies exist, let alone planets and stars. And we believe the vast reaches of our solar system was made by God essentially in an instant and that he exists above and beyond all that. And we also believe that God created the smallest little bacteria or atom or whatever little molecule now exists that is the smallest little piece of living matter that exists. We believe God made both the masses, the mass of great things, and also the little small things, that God is a creator God who made everything that we have. We also believe that God created man. He created you and me, he created humanity, and that he placed humanity in, as Genesis will talk about, the Garden of Eden. And that in that process, sin entered the world when man was created in a perfect state, 
and man chose to sin. And many of you know that story of Adam and Eve and the apple and all, the fruit and all that, that stuff. Now here's the, the situation. Uh, I want you to think with me clearly on this, so that this is strange, all right? If, if you grew up in church, this sounds normal, it sounds like church talk, but kind of unplug yourself from this for a minute. We now believe, so if you're a Christian, you believe there's a God that you can't see, who created stuff that you can see, and that this God put people on this planet, of all the planets in the solar system, of all the planets in the galaxy, of all the planets in the universe, this God who made all of them populated this place with humans. And these humans fell into sin, into a moral problem, and somehow God, who created everything, actually cares about that. Of all the things that he has to worry about, he actually cares that there are moral issues or ethical issues that exist within humanity. And that God, somewhere along the line, here's what Christians believe, that God actually sent his son, and here's us, sent his son to this planet. We believe that God's son is not a son like um, my son would be of me. And that is, think about it this way, my son whose name is Luke. There was a time when Luke did not exist, right? I never go back to wishing for that moment. But there, there's a time when Luke did not exist. And there was a time, I am my father and my mother's son. There was a time when I did not exist, right? We need to think, Christians know, Christians believe this, that when we talk about the son of God, we believe there was never a time when the Son did not exist. In other words, we believe that the Son is not language that you and I think of when we think of children or beginning, but rather Jesus the Son, there was never a time when he did not exist. He always existed and that he is, we believe, in fullness God himself with all of the attributes of God. So we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Trinity all in one. We believe that God the Father sent, that word is used intentionally, that he chose on a mission to send the second member of the Trinity to this planet to be born of a Virgin Mary and to take on bodily form, what we call the incarnation, and to grow up within all of the the confines of the very humanity that he created in the first place. This is truly strange, (laughs) Isn't it? If you stop to think about this, this is truly strange that God the Father sent his Son, who is in all parts equal God, to become in all way fully human, to come onto this planet and to walk on this planet of all places. Why? 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 And that is the question that I want to ask this morning. God sent his Son to this planet. The question is why? And to me, this is so fundamental to me because it will shape everything that you see about God and everything you see about your faith, everything you see about how you relate to people around you and how much hope you're willing to have in this world in which you live. And I'd like to suggest that you have already answered this question, if not this question has been answered for you, that you have grown up in a home, whether it's you call it functional or dysfunctional, broken or not broken, whatever you want to call that home, that you've grown up and you've been shaped to think of the answer to this question in a very specific way. That you've been shaped to think about God, your early experiences about God have been shaped by your upbringing, by your own experiences, and by the church that you've been a part of or perhaps not been a part of. And so this morning, to me, as I think about, in many ways, what drives me or one of the fundamental pieces of how I see the world and kind of how I see God is this question, why in the world 
Would God send his son to this planet? And my answer to that is so important for how I see who this God is, how I see how I relate to one another, and what the future and what hope looks like for me, that I want to take you to this issue and talk about this for the few minutes that we have this morning. This question was asked, not in these words, but essentially asked by a leading uh, Pharisee during the time of Jesus' walk on the earth. And this Pharisee's name was Nicodemus. And so in the Gospel of John, chapter 3 is where we're going to end up. So while I'm talking here, feel free to turn to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew around you. Uh, that is our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own a Bible. that You can take that home with you today. We'd be glad to have you keep that and read that. John is the, the fourth, what we call, gospel or story about Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will begin the New Testament, so it'll be in the right third of your Bible. John chapter 3. And... As you get there, we're going to begin in verse 1 in a minute, but you should know this, that John chapter 2, you need to know what happened in John chapter 2, so you can either try to read it all quickly while I'm still talking, or I will just tell you quickly what happened. In John chapter 2, we have the first recorded miracle of Jesus, and that is that he went to a wedding feast, if you remember this story, if you've been in church at all, and he actually turned water into All right, we all said wine in church. Okay, just want to be clear on that. All right, so he turned water into wine, all right? Uh, and that's just the, the reality. And here's the thing. I just want you to know the, the language of John, John who's writing this letter, this gospel, is a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the three closest disciples of Jesus. He wrote this, and the language that he used to write about that, um, the miracle in the wedding feast in Cana, essentially is saying this, that he made this to be his first miracle. In other words, it just didn't happen that he was at this wedding feast in Cana, but rather the intentionality of John as a writer indicates that this was a purposed event in Jesus' life. He made this to be his first miracle. Was at the end of the wedding feast when when the wine had run out, he said, hey, come on, bring what you have, and he turned the water into wine. Following that, in John's account, in John chapter 2, the next thing we read about in John 2 is uh, a real change of of feel from Jesus, from feasting at a wedding to uh, angry Jesus. This is angry Jesus. Angry Jesus in the temple. This is angry Jesus coming into the temple, and there are money changers, there are people selling livestock in the temple, and Jesus is angry. If you know your, your Bible at all, if you heard the story, Jesus will come in and he clears the temple. He doesn't clear it by by you know, asking for a petition for people to sign it and, and legislating people out of the temple. He just physically kicks people out of the temple. With a whip, he starts whipping, he starts throwing tables all over the place. He creates havoc in the temple. And he says that this will be, you know, you've created a den of robbers or den of thieves, and this shall be a house of prayer. And that creates chaos within, within, the, the, uh, within Jerusalem at the time. Then what happens next in John 2 is that Jesus basically hangs out in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, and John will write, performing various miracles and signs. We don't know how long that happens, but here's what we know. During the Passover, there are thousands of Jews who come. There are thousands of people. This is a very festive environment, very festive time, and they all come, and they're ready to to hear what's going on. They're ready to celebrate together. And in the middle of all of this great celebration, Jesus performs many miracles and signs. We don't know how many. We don't know how long that happened. We just know that's what John records in John chapter 2. So in light of all that background, here comes in John chapter 3, verse 1, our main character for this morning right next to Jesus is this Pharisee named Nicodemus. And so check it out in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. 
he came to Jesus at night. Now, before we get into what he said, notice what you see about uh, Nicodemus right away. Uh, Number one, he was a Pharisee. Uh, For many of us, we don't know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee and all that, but you should know that as a Pharisee, uh, Nicodemus was probably not too upset about what Jesus did in the temple because that wasn't his primary uh, area to worry about. Uh, That that to him probably felt good because the Sadducees were primarily involved in keeping the temple in order and, uh, and they didn't always get along. And so he was probably okay with that. But there was something that he wanted to figure out with Jesus. There was the miracles and signs that Jesus was doing in and around Jerusalem were enough to create wonder and curiosity in him that he, as, as the text says, was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to him at night. So this is a smart guy, all right? The Pharisees were the party of the people, um, and Nicodemus was a leader of the party of the people. And so he would be considered a man who was very influential, very intelligent, um, probably well-spoken, uh, probably very well-read. He memorized all of the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He not only read them, but he memorized them. So he's a guy who's very smart, and he's coming to Jesus, and he comes at night. And we wonder, why did he come at night? Was he fearful of what people might say? I don't know. Or did he want to have more time to talk to Jesus rather than the busyness of the day? I'm not sure you know, why, but we know he came at night. At the least, he wanted less distractions with Jesus, we can say. So he comes, and here's what he says. Rabbi, interesting introduction. In other words, he knows he's a teacher. He says, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. I assume he's speaking of the Pharisees now. The Pharisees know, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. All right? He doesn't actually ask a question. He just makes a statement. Have you ever been around somebody who uh, you wonder what their business is? Like they call you on the phone, they start chatting for two, three minutes and shooting the breeze, and you're like, okay, what is your point? (laughs) Why did you call me? Um, Jesus is kind of like that in this moment. And Jesus then goes in verse 3, and he says, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. At which point I say, what? why does that follow what Nicodemus just said? Nicodemus didn't ask a question, he just said, we know you're a teacher. And Jesus says, and here's what I think Jesus is doing, he's seeing that Nicodemus is beginning to see that there's a work from God and he's inviting him further into the kingdom of God. He's saying to, to Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again into it. You're beginning to see but let me invite you further. I'm not going to play the game with you. I'm going to invite you to come with me. Listen, I know what you want. You want to know what's going on. You can't see the kingdom of God in fullness until you are born again. Nicodemus, then verse 4, says, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. At which point, if I read that alone, I think Nicodemus is a dumb man. Like, come on, Nicodemus. You know he's not talking about that. But Nicodemus isn't dumb. He's a smart fella. He's a member of the leading council of the day. He's a sharp guy. And his immediate reaction is, what are you talking about? I I am thinking that you're meaning that someone must be born again. It's just not possible. And here's what that tells me, that immediately Jesus is talking about something that is so foreign, so foreign to his concept that he has no place to put it in his brain. He has nowhere to put it. Like, this just doesn't make any sense at all. This is like me speaking Hebrew to you all of a sudden. You're like, I have no idea what you just said. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Like, what do you mean? He's just confused about all of this. And so Jesus tries to answer again in verse 5. I tell you the truth, he says. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth, birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. 
You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I'm not talking about a physical reality, a physical deal. I'm talking about the spiritual reality of being born anew. Um, kind of like the wind. We don't see the wind, but we see the effects of the wind. Uh, Eugene Peterson calls this the invisible moving the visible. This happens all the time for you, right? If you're... you're um, teenage or adult son is starting to date a girl and she likes to run early in the mornings, all of a sudden he's got up at six in the morning to go run with her and you're like, what? It's the invisible moving the visible all of a sudden. Like, what is happening to this guy? It's the invisible love or affection or desire to be with this girl that's moving the visible into action. You're like, what is creating that? Ah, he got bit by the bug, all right? He's interested in her and so there we go. So it's the invisible moving the visible, and so it's the spiritual realm moving into the physical reality. And so Nicodemus, verse 9, is still confused. How can this be, he asked. That's a fair question. Verse 10, Jesus comes back pretty strongly to him. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. At which point, I don't know that Nicodemus is like, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) In fact, we don't know what Nicodemus says at this point. But it, it is an interesting statement Jesus makes. In other words, like, if you don't get it now, I'm not sure that I can really help you in a way. Like, you're Israel's teacher, you should know. And then he tries to give an image or a metaphor that helps him understand in verse 14. And he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus is appealing to this event that happened in Old Testament history of Israel, where the people of Israel... Um, sinned and God's judgment on them was essentially bringing snakes into their, uh, into their camp. And that would be enough of a nightmare for many of you that you're like, wow, I will never sin against God again in my whole life. So many of them were bitten by snakes and some were dying. And the solution was that God said to Moses, I want you to erect a bronze snake and hold it up. And whoever looks up on that will be healed and will be saved from this. And so Jesus goes back to this story and he says, remember, Remember when people were dying? Remember when people were poisoned by these snakes? What was held up in the desert? And see, in many ways, this is what Jesus becomes, that the the poison of sin, the poison of the trouble of this life is happening all around us, and Jesus becomes the one that we look to. And this is exactly what he's trying to use as a metaphor to say, listen, this is who I am. I'm like that bronze snake that was held up in the desert. I'm the one who's come to save. If people will look on me and see with the eyes of their heart who I am, they will be saved from the problem that they're in. And then, verse 16 happens. And verse 16 of John chapter 3 is is probably the most popular verse in the whole Bible. In fact, if you're not even a Bible person, you've ever read the Bible, you probably can even just quote John 3.16 all by itself. In truth, we don't know if Jesus said this or if John wrote this. If you have an NIV, I think the quotations continue as if Jesus said it. We're not sure because if you have an ESV or an NAS version, different versions of the Bible, then it'll be John who wrote it. So we're not sure. But either way, it is biblical. It's under the authority of God's word. And so John 3.16, so let's quote this baby together, right? So, so what is John 3.16? Because you know that without me even saying it, right? I'm just going to start and then you're going to carry it out. Ready? For God... 
Yeah, very good. Kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of flat, but you got it. Kind of King James-ish as well, right? How many of you did that in King James? Yeah. Yeah, I know we kind of kind of mumbled over, he gave his one and only or gave his only begotten, like and your neighbor said something else and you said something else, right? So you know the verse. We know the verse. The most, the most popular verse without, hands down, in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, in the Bible at all. And this is the context in which it comes. In other words, there is this final explanation, whether it's from Jesus or John, I don't know, this final explanation to clarify the problem that Nicodemus has, and that is, why are you here? I don't understand Why are you here? And then the explanation comes in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. It seems so simple to us because we've heard it so many times, but here's what I want you to know. I want you to go back in time for a minute. Stay in Nicodemus' world. Remember, his mind is already blown about the idea of being born again. All right, Just remember that. Nicodemus grew up as a man, a Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees, and here's what's happening. This is so helpful for us to see. At this period of time, there were no other... There were no other Jewish writers. There were no Jewish bloggers. There were no Jewish um, authors. There were no Jewish Twitter people, all right? Twitter people, all right? There are no tweets coming out. There's no um, social media out there that is saying this. No one, no one is saying that God loves the world. This is so important for you to understand. But everyone who's a Jewish writer or theologian or thinker or pastor type is saying that God loves Israel. And through Israel, the whole world can be saved. But that's the message. Through Israel, the whole world can be saved. God loves Israel, but there is no one. We have no historical evidence of any other Jewish writer at this time saying anything about God loving the world. We only have evidence of God loving Israel. It is not perceived to be the same thing, that that God can love the world as much as he loves Israel. And this has got to be blowing Nicodemus' mind, that God can love the Gentiles and everybody as much as he loves his covenant people, the promised people, Israel. This is a game changer for Nicodemus, that God is so simple for us. We just say it like it's nothing, for God so loved the world that he gave. (laughs) Those words had to be category shifters for Nicodemus, for God so loved not just Israel but the world. He loved everyone that he gave his one and only son. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, when you hear good news, when you hear good news, sometimes it's easy to accept as it is and, and, and sometimes you don't quite get it because it's so good. Uh, if you've ever gotten a, a job that you really wanted or, you know, the girl, she said yes or, you know, he finally asked me out or, you know, um, I, uh, whatever, I got into the college that I wanted to or, you know, oh, we can finally get the house we want and they took our offer on the house and you're really, really excited about it. There's sometimes when there's really good news that it's just so hard to conceive of the implications of it that someone has to tell you the same thing but the opposite. In other words, she said yes. Wow, she said yes, I can't believe it. That means that I will not be alone, all right? Wow, I got the job. That means, and then the inverse, that means I no longer have to, whatever, flip burgers or whatever. Okay, we got the house. That means we no longer have to crunch everybody into our our little place. So sometimes telling the inverse of what's true helps us understand what is true. 
And so John 3.17 is actually where I want us to land. Now, let's all quote John 3.17 together without looking. <laughs> okay, so some of, you, some of you know that. I don't, you might even be saying something else. I don't know what you're saying. Some of you know that, but most of you, you know, laugh in response. Like, why would we do that? That's not John 3.16. That's right. But John 3.17 is the same truth of John 3.16 just flipped in reverse. And it's trying to help us understand Jesus, God so loved the world, but what does it not mean? And this to me is the life changer, the game changer for me that really helps me get why in the world would God send his son to this planet. And John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the inverse of John 3.16, saying the same thing but in reverse. This is what God didn't come to do. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. And, And I don't know what your early experiences are like with Christianity and faith and with God and the church and Jesus and all that. I don't know what that's like. But here's what I know, that in the moment of time where there was an attempt to describe why is it that Jesus came, whether it's his words or John's, I don't know. The answer is given. God sent, intentionally sent his son into the world because he loved the world. And that anyone who believes can have eternal life. So let me explain it this way. God didn't send his son to condemn the world. Let me make it clear that way. God didn't send his son to condemn and to shake his finger at the world and say, you are bad people. But isn't that, if we will pause on that for a minute, isn't that what many of us experience with religion? You're not moral enough. You're not obedient enough. You don't hold the line well enough. You're not faithful enough as a husband. You're not gracious enough as a wife. You're not pure enough as a man. You're not thoughtful enough as a woman. Isn't that what we hear, the finger wagging and the condemnation that comes thinking that somehow God has come into the world to condemn us, to condemn the world. And Jesus' message is simple from the beginning. I haven't come to condemn the world. John's message, he hasn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And it's a game changer for how you see your God and how you see your faith and how you see the people around you. If God came to condemn the world, you have every right to be a duty-driven, joyless person. For many of you wondering... Why, why do I not experience the joy of the life? Why am I dispassionate? Why am I kind of blasé about faith? And there may be a myriad of reasons for that, but it's quite possible that part of the thing in your system, in your brain, in your heart, is that I have a God, or this God of the universe is a rule-keeping God, first of all. This God cares that I'm here in church checking off my attendance on a Sunday morning, and he's most interested in my performance and most interested in how I respond to his moral and ethical claims. And if I don't, Mm, I'm going to get in trouble with him. Because he's a rule-keeping God, and he's a condemning God, and he's a judgmental God. And that may have been your experience, but here's John 3.17, for God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now here's, here's some pushback, if you will. Here's some pushback that I think is fair. There is condemnation, there is judgment spoken about in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the minor prophets speak about that all the time. They're just angry people. 
They're responding to the sin of Israel. There's condemnation and judgment. Just in John chapter 2, I explained to you that this is an angry Jesus walking into the temple, casting out the, the money changers, and that is a form of judgment and condemnation on the people. And so it's fair to ask, what role, though, does condemnation and judgment have within Christianity? Because it's there and it exists. And I, and I appreciate the way that Eugene Peterson writes about it in the message, and so I want to throw it up here for you. Here's what he says. He said, this is how much God, this is John 3:16 in the message translation. Uh, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. John 3:17. he continues and writes this way. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. For those of you who are visual, let me explain it this way. You remember a moment in your life, and it could have been this summer, where you're on a scene like this, on a picture like this, where you're walking the beach on a, on a sunrise, or if you like to avoid those like I do in general, okay, just kind of put yourself there for a minute. You're, you're walking the beach and you see the sunrise. In particular, think about a sunrise that comes after a cloudy uh, day, kind of like what we had yesterday, where finally the storm has cleared, and the sun rises, it's quiet, and it's a beautiful walk, a beautiful morning, and everything is kind of quiet and right in the world. And the sunrise becomes a very beautiful and welcome thing, doesn't it? The sunrise becomes something that warms you, not only physically, but also emotionally, too, and spiritually in many ways. We can't even describe it, but it just all feels really right and good. But the sun also does something else, doesn't it? And, and it creates within you um, a shadow, doesn't it? So when you're walking and the sun is just rising, and we know this without even having to think about it or describe it, but look behind or beside you or in front of you, and you will see your shadow. And in a, in a way, here's how to understand the idea that Jesus came to save. He came with compassion. He came with grace. But also as a part of that is this reality that anyone who loves truth will hate injustice. Anyone who is for good will hate evil. That salvation and justice go hand in hand, they have to. But Jesus is like the rising sun that, th- that comes, and its intent, first of all, is not to throw a shadow, but to throw light. The sun doesn't rise so that shadows can be thrown all over the world. The sun rises so that warmth and light can be brought. As a consequence of bringing light, there are places that will be dark. And some will hide behind the shadows. Some, like me, if I'm out on the beach, I will try to find the shade because I don't like being in the light as much as my wife does. And some of us, when the light of salvation comes, we want to hide in the shadows of it because we're afraid of what it will mean for us. But when Jesus comes, he comes, first of all, to bring light, to bring hope, to bring salvation. But as a byproduct of that comes judgment, comes condemnation for some, for those who choose not to believe in him. That's just part of the deal. But the sun rises not to throw shadows. The sun rises not to bring darkness. The sun rises not to bring anger and condemnation, but the sun rises to bring light. And so here's kind of what I'm angling toward and getting for in all this. That Jesus, and this is going to kind of, it's kind of sound, um, this is going to sound almost like a, a hippie statement here, right? Jesus offers more love and hope then we have the capacity to believe, all right? That might fit well in the 60s or 70s. But it's the truth that Jesus comes and his, his light of salvation, his hope of salvation comes, and he offers, he offers to you and to me more love and hope than we have the capacity to even believe, understand, or perceive. 
that when, when he comes, and he comes not to condemn the world, but to save the world, he's essentially saying, listen, this is not a religious system. I'm not putting on top of you a need to, to jump through a bunch of religious and spiritual hoops. I have come that, that people may have life, John 10.10, 10, and have it abundantly. So I don't know where you come from. I don't know where you have come from in your experience with God, but to me, this has been a game changer for me in my life. Seeing my faith and Christianity as, first of all, a, a message, an offer from God through his son, Jesus Christ, his unique son, who was put on this planet to grow up in, in a human body and to die and be resurrected, come back to life again, so that I might have hope and understand what love is like. And so here's my problem. When I, when I begin to lose hope, when I begin to lose love and gratitude and graciousness, I begin to see I'm stepping away from the very thing that God has saved me for. And so my encouragement for you this morning, my encouragement for you this morning is where you stand now. As you see your own faith walk with God, as you see how you relate to God, how you relate to one another, even here or beyond here, at work or at home or whatever it is, that as you think about this, this is a God who sent his son, first of all, to love me. To love the world, not just Israel. To love the world, not just the church. To love the world, not just my people who I understand. To love everyone. If that's true, that has implications for everyone. There's implications for all people of all religious background, all ethnic background, all social, sexual, spiritual background, all of those backgrounds. Jesus came because the love of God was so strong that he loves the world. And so Jesus comes to offer more love than we can believe in and more hope than we can ever understand. And my I hope for you is if you find yourself now in a place where you're just kind of dragging the bottom of your faith right now, or you're kind of dragging the bottom of your Christian experience, and you're just kind of going through the, the motions of life, and Sunday rolls around, and you just kind of, I just go to church, my body wakes up, and I drive myself to church, I don't even think about it. I just want to remind you that the Jesus, that if you claim to follow Jesus, that Jesus you claim to follow is one who's come to give life and hope and love that will be expressed to everyone around you, but not to come and bring condemnation, judgment, anger, religious rights on top of everything else. That our God, first of all, loved the world so much that he sent his only son Jesus to come die for us, not to condemn us, not to condemn us, but that the world through him might be saved. To me, that's a game changer. It's a game changer. Jesus is not angry. God is not angry. He comes to bring life and hope and love. No matter where you find yourself. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance we have to um, be in your word this morning. To stop and pause and reflect on some things that are true although difficult to conceive of, difficult because our experience doesn't always match up. But I pray that you would give us courage and wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard, to remind us that you are a God who is a God of love, not, first of all, a God of condemnation, not a God, first of all, who's concerned with our obedience, not first of all concerned with our um, conforming to the religious rules around us, but that your concern is the love that you have for the people that you put on this planet. 
And it blows my mind that this is true. But it is. So give us the courage, Father, to express this same kind of love and to grow in an understanding of what this means, both in how we relate to you and how we relate to others and the kind of Jesus that we hold out to our community and to our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name.